about 16 years ago, actually it was 16 years ago, I was in Ghana, West Africa during the World Cup. And it was pretty cool to be able to, as we were traveling through the country, you'd go through uh, a village and pretty much the entire village would be around a single TV watching what's going on there. And it's already been a fascinating uh, tournament so far, but I see, I, I know what country I'm in. How many of you have been following the World Cup at all or like care about soccer? Okay, all right, about the same amount. Uh, in, in first service as well. I think it's fantastic. There's been a lot of drama already, uh, a lot of great games being played. Last Sunday, maybe you heard about this, even if you're not a soccer fan, the defending champions, Germany, were defeated by our southern uh, neighbors, Mexico, 1-0. Did you hear about this? And when Mexico scored their goal, seismology equipment in Mexico City actually picked up the, mo the moment that everybody was celebrating that goal. Did you, did you, see, did you see this? Now, I, I mean, they didn't cause an earthquake or anything, or a tremor or anything like that, but they just picked up the celebration where this, and there are a couple other sporting events where this has happened because seismology equipment is, is sensitive enough, but um, where an entire nation is so excited, they're pulling for their team. It's got to be a great feeling to have an entire country like just so happy that they're in this tournament and they're playing well and it's great. I, I, wish, I wish we knew what that felt like because the USA didn't qualify for the World Cup, so we kind of miss out on that. But it's just kind of a beautiful thing to see just people all over for an entire nation be so passionate about something, as long, of course, as things are going the way that they're expected. I don't know if you know much about the World Cup, but there's only one team that comes out on top. Only one team wins, and so that means somewhere along the line, somebody's home team is going to be sent home. And so all the pressure, all the weight of expectation, all the, the hopes and dreams about your country finally lift, lifting up that golden soccer ball are dashed. And I, I mean, people handle that in very different ways. Sometimes they look at the hero or the star player for their national team and they think, oh man, what does his legacy now have, you know, for, for the rest of his future because they didn't, he didn't make the team win. And so what are we going to do about this? In fact, that passion sometimes can turn pretty ugly. In the 90s, um, maybe some of you know about this, there was a soccer player, I won't say from which country uh, or, or his name or anything like that, but he, uh, he was defending as best he could but ended up accidentally, accidentally scoring a goal for the other team. So he had an own goal. And, and this, is, like, this is one of the worst things that can happen to you as a soccer player because goals are so hard to come by. And he was distraught. I mean, it was all the weight of expectation that he had on his own shoulders and the nation and all this kind of stuff that got bumped out of the tournament. But not only was he distraught, when he got home, somebody took his life because he had scored an own goal and because that's how much people couldn't live with the reality that they, what they wanted to have happen didn't happen. It is an ugly thing when our passion, and, and this is a thing that happens uh, throughout humanity's history, when our passion for something is, is turned from our love for it to, uh, to using it for, for hatred. It can happen in sports, but we also, as human beings, we do that with our relationships when, for example, we hurt the people that we're closest to, people we should love the most, but we use that passion to hurt them. We do it socially when we treat people with disdain that we expect to treat us with deference. It happens politically 
when we seek to use our freedoms to suppress somebody else, and it happens religiously when we have faith for ourselves and we offer condemnation for others. Human history is full of examples of this type of hypocrisy. And the church in Acts chapter 6, as we're looking at the early church and how it develops, is on the receiving end of this type of passion gone wrong in its early beginning. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 6, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Last week we talked about Peter and John and how they were brought up against this Jewish uh, leadership council and how their message of Jesus, they were told, hey, stop preaching about this. And so there was some friction, but it seems like, okay, they were let off the hook and, and they weren't arrested anymore. They could go on about their business and maybe things are going to be fine for the church and this is going to be great, but actually things are about to get much, much worse. And it starts in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 8. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. And then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now, Stephen's a new guy who shows up on the, scene at, on the scene at this point. It wasn't just the apostles who were spreading the gospel. They were leading people. They were leading congregations. And they were starting to see and take on the same mission from Jesus as disciples as the apostles had been given. And so Stephen is one of, this, one of these new generations of church leaders who's going around and sharing the good news about who Jesus is. Now, I mean, it's still the case that there were people in power and people who had influence that didn't like this message being spread. These people that were at this synagogue, I mean, everything that Stephen was talking about and the apostles and other Christians were sharing was against, was counter to what they thought God wanted and what God was teaching. And so they started debating Stephen about what he believed. Not that any of us get caught into that kind of stuff, right, in life. So they started debating religiously about what they believed, theology about God and how that should work. But Stephen knew his stuff. It wasn't just him that knew his stuff. The Holy Spirit empowered him to the point where these people were extremely frustrated because they couldn't convince Stephen that he was wrong. And so instead of continuing the debate, they started spreading rumors that he had blasphemed against God. See, this crime was punishable by death, and it's kind of a vicious and sadistic version of what we do as kids when we don't want to listen to someone, we stick our fingers in our ears, and, eh, not listening, you know, we don't want to hear what somebody is saying because we can't deal with maybe the truth of what they're saying, or maybe they're just being annoying. And this is how they choose to handle Stephen. And once again, the gospel finds itself in court. Once again, we see another Christ follower who is set before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, just like Peter and John were, just like Jesus was. And we're going to see whether or not Stephen is guilty of what he's accused of. In Acts chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asked Stephen, Are these charges true? Have you been blaspheming against Moses, the teachings of God? And to this he replied, Brothers and fathers, Listen to me. 
And, and I'm not going to keep reading, but in Acts chapter 6, if you look through there, Stephen goes on for about the next 40 verses preaching a sermon to this council. So he kind of ignores their question. And again, time and time again, as you look through how Jesus handled himself in front of the court, how Peter and John handled themselves in front of the court, they're questioned about what God has called them to do and how they're living out their faith. And their response is to share the gospel every single time. That's what they do. They said, let me, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you something about what, what God is doing. Let me share with you about what Jesus has done. And Stephen is no different. So for the next 40, this is actually the longest sermon that we have in Acts. And what Stephen does is he goes through basically the entire Old Testament. He basically uses an outline of the Old Testament. And he says, this is what God has always been pointing to, that he was going to send the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, to save us. Everything that happens in the Old Testament, all the, of the, this history was pointing to Jesus. Now, the people he was talking to, these Jewish religious leaders, many of them would have all this memorized, and so they didn't need this repeat of history. But what, Pete, what Stephen was doing was something different. He's looking at all of these major things in Jewish history, and he's interpreting them through the lens of what Jesus has done. He shows how Abraham's story points to Jesus coming. He shows how Joseph's story was just like Jesus' story of rejection and redemption. He talks about Moses and says that the way the Jews treated Moses was just like the, how they treated Jesus because they venerated Moses now, but they didn't when Moses was teaching and living. He talks about David and Solomon and how they were creating. They wanted to create a place for God to live here on earth in a room and how that wasn't necessarily what God needed because he was sending Jesus to us. And this Jewish council picks up on exactly what, Jesus, what Stephen is trying to get across here. They get his point. Stephen is sharing with them, he says, not only is the message of Jesus not in opposition to God's plan for, for, for the Jews, but that it was the fulfillment of God's plan for the entire world. That everything in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus all along. In other words, Stephen was looking at him and saying, hey, if anybody's wrong here, it's you. You're the ones who have missed out on the message that God has been trying to share for generations. You always seem to find a way to reject God's messengers, and you did the same thing with Jesus. Remember last, words, last week's word, because we're looking at one particular word as we uh, talk about what Acts is trying to teach us and show us as Christ followers was boldness. And Stephen is pretty bold. Um, by the way, in Acts chapter 7, verse 40, 51, like, Stephen says the exactly the wrong thing that you should say if you're in the situation that he's in. In Acts chapter 7, verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people. Like, I don't recommend you saying that to someone, if, like if you're in court or something like that and you're talking to the judge. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You'll always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but have not obeyed it. And what Stephen is doing is he's pointing out one of the problems that humans have been dealing with since the beginning of time. And that is that we take our passion for God and belief and faith and we use it for evil. In fact, the way that we do this is we take what we want from God and we reject, we reject what he gives us. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Things are about to go very wrong for Stephen in this moment. The Sanhedrin are to the point where they're foaming at the mouth, they're angry, and yet in this terrifying moment that he finds himself in, the Holy Spirit brings Stephen a vision that reminds him of the hope that he has faith in, the peace that he can trust in. When Stephen says this, the Sanhedrin covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Yes, this is the same Saul who later on becomes Paul. We'll be talking about him more next week. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Listen, we've, we've all watched movies, and we've all read books, and we're familiar with the martyr trope, that there's some side character that somehow, you know, gives his life for the cause so then the hero can continue on and everything can end up, you know, being all uh, special and hunky-dory and all that kind of stuff. You didn't know you are going to hear hunky-dory this morning, did you? Um, at the, by the end of the movie. And, like, that's the real stuff that happens here. But Stephen and what happens with him is much more significant than that. See, Stephen... Stephen isn't just some character in a story. He was a real human being. He was a real person. He was probably a real husband. He was probably a real father who really gave his life for the sake of the gospel, who was really empowered by the Holy Spirit and the resurrected Jesus Christ to, in the face of death, be able to share the good news about what God has done for us. See, Stephen was the first martyr of Christianity. He wouldn't be the last, but he was the first, and he started the spread of the gospel to the world. And it was all based on this. He believed that if Jesus is worth following, he's worth following no matter what. No matter what circumstance he was going to find himself in, whether or not it was standing in front of a court or whether or not he was being stoned. Even while he was being executed, Stephen was sharing the gospel. He said, don't, God, don't let this sin be held against them. That, that's the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus came, so our sin wouldn't be held against us. And Stephen is still doing that even in the midst of being executed. And this is, look, I, I get it, this is a dark part of the church. This is a dark chapter of the book of Acts where we ask, like, why did, why did things get to this? How could the Sanhedrin take things this far? Why did, why did Stephen say those things? Like, why do you call him stiff-necked and uncircumcised? Like, maybe if he hadn't said that way, maybe if he had said it maybe a different way, he would, he would have lived. Maybe there's a lot of questions about how things should be or how it should be handled, but the real question is, like, what, is, what does this mean for, for us? For the church in 2018, like, what, what does this reality of persecution mean for us? And that, that, if you haven't figured out, that's the word for today is persecution. Like, what, what is 
what are we supposed to do with that? What does it look like for us? I, I'm not sure persecution is something that we really have a full grasp on in our context. I mean, I, I struggle, I had to deal with that a little bit, about that, I had to deal with that a little bit this week. It's tough for me to get out for some reason. Uh, well, because I was so traumatized, because Renee posted this picture uh, this week. She was celebrating our anniversary, and this is the picture she shared. You know, not like a good one where I was dressed up like in the tux when we're getting married and stuff, but, but that picture right there with my, with my yellow hair. And so I was persecuted online. I was persecuted in person. You know, uh, persecution is being severely mistreated by opposition. And so, all right. Maybe it's usually because of politics. Maybe it's usually because of race and religion and all, all of the above. We, we can all think of periods in time in history where we recognize where we say, yes, that's, that's persecution, and, and we know that. And this is maybe, maybe this is kind of a, an aside from the, from the message, but we, you and me, and first service, you know, the church in, in America, we, we do not experience persecution. Not, not from a global context. And I'm not saying that, that it's not possible that there aren't, I'm not saying that there aren't incidents in which persecution can happen at times on American soil. Like that, that's not what I'm saying, but I'm saying we don't experience persecution. We still get to say Merry Christmas. I, I don't know if you knew that or not, but like we, we still get to do that. We can do that. And one of the things that I think it makes, makes it hard for us to contextualize persecution properly in our country is that um, sometimes the freedoms that we are so passionate about are the very things that we hold on to at the expense of the gospel. So it's my experience, my observation, that, for example, Christian, I'll call it Christian nationalism, has given the American church the reputation for being bold politically and passive with the gospel. At least, at least from a biblical perspective, the goal of the gospel is not to live a persecution-free existence. It's to spread the gospel whether persecution exists or not. And I'm not saying, like, be politically engaged, you know, vote, and all those kind of, be a great citizen, all those kinds of things. I'm not, not taking anything away from that, but what I'm saying is put Jesus, put the gospel on top and above all those things every single time. Share the grace and mercy of Jesus, even particularly where you find it hard to do so. See, persecution has always been a part of Christian history, and it's going to continue to be a part of the story of the church. Stephen's story, his experience, what happened in his life, caused the church to scatter in all different parts of the world. And we see stuff like this happen. Persecution still happens today. People are dying for their faith, and it makes us want to say, why? Like, why does this mistreatment of people who are supposed to be sharing love and grace and mercy, like, why, why does this happen? How do things, how, how do things come to this? Why, why is it to that degree that people are willing to kill people just because they live something different? Well, one of the reasons is the devil is real and he doesn't want people to follow Jesus. Like, there, there really is a spiritual enemy for the message that Jesus has entrusted 
with us to share with other people. He uses people's fear, their prejudices, their politics to divide brother against brother and allow all types of evil to happen. There's a spiritual battle that wants to shut down the message of Jesus. So, of course, persecution happens. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 18, hey, if the world hates you, don't forget that they hated me first. He tells us to expect persecution and that we're blessed when we face it. But in the midst of that, Christians believe that if Jesus is worth following, he's worth following no matter what. Look, we have a good in the far west end when it comes to our faith. We're sitting here in a building. We've got electricity. We even have bathrooms, like running water bathrooms. We've got a water fountain back there. We have a great, there are Christians in China that, and this, this would be so foreign to their existence and their experience and worship of God. Where they, they might be the size of the small group that we had at 9 a.m. where we spend every Sunday at 9 praying for this congregation and who's going to come through the doors and our services and our kids and all, all that kind of stuff. Maybe that size group huddled in a dark room together where the door's locked where they don't know if the next person who's coming in might be there to rat on them or to arrest them or to kill them because they're worshiping God. There's 60 nations. There are about 60 nations in the world that are openly antagonistic to Christianity, that allow persecution and even encourage persecution to happen. There are thousands of people who die specifically because they're living out their faith in Jesus. And so you think, well, man, persecution is still real. It still happens. So where's the hope in that? What do we, where do we lean on for comfort? When we know that persecution is a possibility we can expect and, and that Jesus says in Matthew 5 that those who are persecuted are blessed, well, let me share a story with you. There's a man, uh, his name is Dr. Ajay Lal. He's an alumnus from a uh, university that I, that I went to, so that's how I know about him. Uh, he grew up in India <clears throat> among Hindus and became Christian as a young man. He's the founder of Central India Christian Mission, which is based in India. Um, and for the past 30 years, he's made it his life's work to spread the message of Jesus to, uh, in, in the country. And in the midst of that, I, I don't know if you know that, but one of the major religions in India is, is Hinduism. And there are places in the country in which Christians are severely persecuted. And so you wonder, well, how does that work? How does somebody find hope in that? And how does that, how does that happen? Well, let me, let me share some numbers with you. Central Christian Indian Mission have planted 14,000 churches in India. They baptized over 400,000 people into Jesus. Their medical mission has treated over 72,000 people. They're currently caring for about 5,000 orphans. They're the first on the scene for disaster relief in many regions, and some of their pastors have been killed because they're preaching the gospel. See, God works in spite of the evil that happens in this world. And when he sparks a movement, nothing can stand in his way. And I'm grateful for men like Stephen, for men and women around the world who are living out their faith in the midst of things that are happening because it's a reminder for you and for me that our goal isn't to get a golden ticket so we can ride on a cloud and play harps for eternity. Our mission is to crash the gates of hell and to carry the message of salvation of people who are living outside of God's life, light. And it's worth it because lives are changed for eternity and the message of the gospel is spread. 
See, Stephen is stoned, the believers scatter, and I'm sure the, the leaders in that time thought, man, we won, we finally got rid of them, and that's great. But Acts chapter 8, verse 4, Luke lets us know that those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Not only did those people continue to believe, and you know why they continued to believe? Because they experienced the resurrection of Jesus. They'd seen his miracles. They'd experienced what the apostles were doing. They'd seen the Holy Spirit moving through the congregations. They continued to believe when they left Jerusalem to find safer places to live, they took the message of Jesus with them to their new homes. God used this event for good. He used it as a catalyst to spread the gospel and to motivate those Christian those Christ followers. Romans 8:28 reminds us that all things work together for good for those who love God and who have been called according to his purpose. Jesus is worth following no matter what. This room is full of people who can tell that same story of God using moments that have been evil in our life and turning them into something good that shares the gospel and benefits the kingdom. This room is full of people who can share that how they hit rock bottom and that's where they finally saw God and turned to him. Or how they found a new chance at life after an ugly divorce. Or how a financial struggle taught them to trust in God's provision. Or how a terrible situation at work gave them the chance to be comforted and gain new perspective on God's provision and care for us and identity for us in this life. It's never God's plan to cause us pain. But he is the master of redeeming that pain so that the world can see him. We live in an evil world. Sin exists in our world whatever pain you might be experiencing, maybe, maybe you personally are experiencing some sort of persecution for your faith and being faithful to God and sharing the gospel uh, in work or with your family or whatever, whatever your context may be. Jesus is following, Jesus is worth following no matter what. Because Jesus has our back. And the world will see that. And the world desperately needs it as well. So right now, as we're worshiping together in this comfortable, air-conditioned, lit room, we have fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who are fearing for their lives for this same opportunity. Just to gather together, to read scripture together, to sing together, to share in communion together, they're risking their lives to do so. Because that's how precious the gospel is. And that's how deeply changed how deeply changed we are when we accept Jesus and when we're indwelt with the presence of God is that we can face no matter what scenario, no matter what situation this evil world may throw at us. So right now I just want to pray for you. I want to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world as we live out our faith with boldness that no matter what situation we find ourselves in that we would trust in that vision that Jesus is there at the right hand of God, that he is preparing a place for us. And this world doesn't keep us from him. Let's pray together. God, I, I, help us to see, I, I know it probably doesn't make sense to pray for hard times, but God, give us opportunities to see you working and moving for the good in our lives. 
Maybe if we're already in a situation that's painful, painful enough, God, help us to, to trust in you long enough to see how you're going you're to change things uh, for your kingdom. God, I, I know Stephen didn't see the results of what happened to him, but man, he trusted in that. And look, look at where the church is now. It's all over the world. And his life was part of the catalyst that you used to spread the good news about Jesus. God, we ask that, um, that you would enable us through your Holy Spirit, that you would empower us to be faithful in the same scenarios in our life, whatever that might look like. God, we ask for, for safety for fellow brothers and, Christ, Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ who are worshiping you. We ask for comfort, we ask for peace, for, for people who maybe for generations of being faithful to Jesus haven't experienced peace yet. God, we ask that, man, those, those who have not yet experienced your light that are committing evil against our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, we, we ask that you wouldn't hold that sin against them, but that you would help them be changed by their interaction with you through us living in our faith. God, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we, um, as we prepare to take communion together, I want to read this passage of Scripture. It's from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 12. And I, I just, just to give you a little bit of context here, as Peter is writing this, this is when Nero is emperor of Rome. And one of the, one of the things that Nero did is he openly persecuted Christians. He even would put... Uh, Christians on uh, stakes in his gardens uh, after they'd been dipped in oil and he would light them on fire uh, for light for the gardens. And here's what, here's what Peter writes. He says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. When we're taking communion together, we're praising God that we are all given the opportunity to come to this table and share the name of Jesus together, to be labeled, to be called a Christian. So as we gather, as we take communion together, I ask that you think and be reminded about man, what it really means to follow Jesus no matter what.